There's just something about a banjo. It's an instrument that's almost spiritual in its symbolism. The humble four-string, roughly fashioned, a staple of the authentic sound of the American heartlands, and particularly African-American culture. It's the everyman's instrument, the cornerstone of folk and country music, passed down from the marginalized to the mainstream. This is what it's come to represent. Authenticity, history, the roughshod beauty of people vamping out music. What's all this banjo stuff? Okay, this is going somewhere, I promise. You see, symbolism is important. Knowing what stuff means, what it represents, what it says, it matters. And sometimes it can be used to trick us. Enter Mumford & Sons, a band very good at pretending to be something they're not. And here's how they let their mask slip, through the actions of their not-so-humble banjoist. Welcome to Cancelled. I'm your host, Cam, and this is the show where we look back at some of the biggest and most bizarre attempts to cancel people, corporations, and even countries. You may think the subjects of our very rigorous and academic study deserve public disdain. You may think it's all a gross injustice. But doesn't matter. Because all of them were judged in the court of public opinion and ultimately canceled. Today's cancellation is all about the tweet factor. Other stars we've covered have fallen off their plinths for being mean, tone deaf, or in some cases, criminal. But today, it's about the death knell that is the misinformed political tweet and how one tweet unraveled a tightly choreographed act that had been over a decade in the making. Today, Mumford & Sons, the divisive darlings of contemporary British pop folk, find themselves at a crossroads. At the time of recording this episode, one of their original members has left, and the media is abuzz with further questions about where they go from here. But before they go anywhere, we need to ask where they came from. How did a band born of such privilege manage to build a brand on a folksy relatability and ye old world masculine cosplay? This is the folk tale of Mumford and Sons, and the parable that is, when people show you who they really are, maybe you should believe them. Retweets are not endorsements. That's what people say. It's become a universal disclaimer in our online discourse, used to dodge criticism for, say, retweeting Trump during his Twitter heyday. Read, a retweet is not an endorsement, even if you're retweeting a fascist. Unless, of course, you add a little message saying you agree with a fascist. That's pretty much what Mumford & Sons banjoist Winston Marshall, who once adopted the moniker Country Winston, did out of the blue on March 7th, 2021. It was a heady time in our recent history. Let's face it, everyone was at least a little crazy after a year of living through a seemingly never-ending pandemic, so some out-of-character behavior could be forgiven. But Marshall's actions hit a nerve. Now, I'll be honest, I don't think tweeting an author who has hung out with far-right hate groups or demonized Antifa is a good look at any moment in time. But to do so in such a febrile atmosphere a word Marshall himself would later use, where the pandemic has given the space for a deep reflection of inequality and injustice across societies, and when the music industry finds itself reckoning with its own political function and identity, is, well, 
pretty characteristic of someone from Wandsworth who, again, called themselves Country Winston for a period and expected the public to buy it. But we'll get into that in a bit. The author that Marshall gave oxygen to is Andy Ngo, an American whom one could describe generously as a conservative journalist cum agitator. Ngo cut his teeth with material for Breitbart and the National Review, covered the Proud Boys March where he alleged Antifa attacked him, and received attention in the UK for an op-ed he wrote for the Wall Street Journal entitled A Visit to Islamic England. Spoiler alert, no such thing exists. An article so littered with inaccuracies that it was roundly dismissed by other mainstream media outlets, including Business Insider and HuffPost. Ngo's magnum opus was released early in 2021. A biting polemic called Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. The thesis is pretty clear from the title. Okay, so here's the thing. This podcast doesn't seek to be political. We just explore how the rich and famous fall from grace. But there's nothing partisan political about taking a stance against fake news. And Ngo's history of playing fast and loose with journalistic integrity and ethics makes it pretty easy to say, without fear of bias, that he's hardly a source to be held in high esteem. Except, and this is the moment of truth, Winston Marshall seems to think he is. He sends the tweet in March. Congratulations at Mr. Andy Ngo, it said. Finally had the time to read your important book. You're a brave man. The furor is immediate and apparently effective. Marshall deletes the tweet. He is conciliatory and seemingly sincere. Quote, I have come to better understand the pain caused by the book I endorsed, Marshall writes in a follow-up tweet. I have offended not only a lot of people I don't know, but also those closest to me, including my bandmates, and for that I am truly sorry, end quote. He announces that he's taking time away from the band to examine his blind spots. The initial anger subsides and is replaced by something else, something Mumford & Sons are well acquainted with, questions around their authenticity, questions that have followed them since they first burst onto the scene over a decade ago. Picture the scene. It's 2009, and four lads with floppy hair and a proclivity for acoustics burst into the public consciousness. They're different. It's a moment when chart-topping artists favor hyperpop, from Lady Gaga to Katy Perry, and EDM is ascendant. The landscape is ripe for something unexpected. They seem perfectly timed for the Polaroid age. As the resurgence of retro takes hold, and people go wild for vinyl and smoking, their particular blend of folksy American instrumental and textured lyric, mounting to a stonking crescendo, make them a hit. Straight out the gate, they achieve mammoth success with their debut album, Sigh No More. The sound matches the visuals. They seem to be stuck in a moment themselves, harking back to an old-timey kind of masculinity that wouldn't be out of place in a Coen Brothers film. In fact, they even cite their inspiration as being the soundtrack to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The foursome favor braces, suspenders if you're American, and waistcoats, and there's no shortage of plaid. It's an incredible rags-to-riches story for four young lads playing what is, in effect, roots music repackaged with a poppy hook and the volume turned up to max. Except the quartet, 
who penned a song called Dust Bowl Dance as an homage to Of Mice and Men's author John Steinbeck and sing heartily about being kicked off their land at age 16, all hair from London, and were privately educated at some of the most prestigious schools in the country, which I guess is about as old-timey as it gets for them. Not that this means anything at all. Of course, four well-to-do kids from London can like folk music and be good at it, and they should be allowed to. But the impersonation aspect of the act, from the name that sounds like it could be a vintage clothes shop in Shoreditch, to the determination to pair a fedora with a t-shirt, grates. As does Marshall's aforementioned attempt at coining himself Country Winston. As the son of an investor who will go on to bankroll GB News, it's a bit on the nose. Of course, it does nothing to dent their success. But the mockery, the puncturing of what's seen as their trickery or delusion, starts here and follows the band throughout their career. It originates from music critics who take issue with their Depression-era cosplay, or what they deem as their lack of musical imagination, symptomatic of what's perceived to be an imitation rather than an authentic expression of musical vision. Perhaps all of this is unfair. After all, their music was and remains wildly successful, and they play stadium after stadium with aplomb. But it's interesting. The moment in time that their whole brand sought to artificially evoke... Hmm. As with Steinbeck's literature, it was a distant golden age of American ascendancy, defined by a traditional masculinity that was, it has to be said, rural and white. When you could be anything, they chose to be echoes of an era that was defined by the autocracy of white men at the expense of everyone else, and the archaic values that such patriarchy is now associated with. It's this same era that has crystallized itself in the minds of the American right as being the exact moment when America was at its greatest. Was this naive recreation or something more sinister? Let's be clear. It's probably a blind nostalgia. I'm not casting aspersions on Winston Marshall's views on race or gender constructs or on his politics, nor am I linking that back to his upbringing. What I am trying to do is explore how this particular brand fell apart after one of its members, Dust Bowl, danced with America's far right, even if it was only for a moment. Except it wasn't just a moment. After the apology tweet in March and Marshall's subsequent break from the band, a Medium post drops in late June. He'd had time to reflect, and his conclusion was he actually had nothing to apologize for at all. He'd been caught up in, quote, the mania of the moment, he claimed, and had only apologized as a salve to protect his bandmates. He wrote, The truth is that my commenting on a book that documents the extreme far left and their activities is in no way an endorsement of the equally repugnant far right. The truth is that reporting on extremism at the great risk of endangering oneself is unquestionably brave. End quote. He doubled down. His break from the band was made permanent in what seemed to be a personal decision. His bandmates released a farewell message, and a different kind of onslaught began. America's right, who has spent much of the past four years railing not against a president who was about as conservative as an Instagram filter, but at what they perceived to be an insidious leftist cancel culture, rallied the troops. 
Commentator after commentator on the right lauded Marshall for his bravery and gave props to him for facing down the beast of wokeism. Country Marshall, it seemed, had given up his kingdom for the right to post. This, at least, was the mantra on his post-banjoist victory lap. In appearances on conservative podcasts with Barry Weiss and Ayan Hirsi Ali, and in an op-ed for The Spectator, he made his standpoint clear. Quote, In the current federal political climate, many of us are just too scared to say what we think. End quote. What's interesting is that he framed his decision to leave as a protective measure for his bandmates, which begs the question, to what extent were his bandmates aware of his views on these issues, and indeed, was there any crossover? In particular, he name-checks Jordan Peterson, a psychologist whose proclamations on traditional masculinity and gender have made him a darling of the right, with whom Marshall and two of his bandmates, save the titular Marcus Mumford, were photographed to some degree of controversy in 2018. Marshall, in each appearance since leaving Mumford and Sons for good, has been clear. A refutation of the far left is not an endorsement of the far right. But it's interesting to see which commentary he most identifies with. From Andy and Go to Jordan Peterson, these are polemicists who champion the kind of masculinity and masculine ideas that Mumford and Sons for so long evoked and hid behind. It's a curious overlap. And for all Marshall's protestations of being as hard on the extreme far right, he hasn't critiqued with much sophistication many of the egregious ideas put forward by Ngo in the book that he, Marshall, elevated in the first place. So country Winston is out and three remain. The braces are gone and now the banjo is too. Mumford and Sons may now have a chance to evolve, albeit short of someone who added their signature sound to their discography. Was Marshall being silenced? Was he forced to suppress unfairly, firmly held views for fear of being chastised by the wokeism mob run amok? I don't doubt that Marshall himself believes he was. Why else would he surrender a successful music career to pontificate on the excesses of leftist cancel culture? What he doesn't seem to realize, though, is that it isn't freedom of speech that a woke worldview is set against. It's the very masculinity on which he has built his career a masculinity that bears the hallmarks of toxicity and is blind to the deck that it has stacked against those who don't fulfill its narrow brief. Marshall doesn't see this. He perhaps understandably sees the world through the eyes not of a humble banjo player, but of an enormously privileged son of a millionaire who made it big in the music scene and now has the luxury of stepping away to pursue a political agenda that is limited in its scope of appeal. He is free to do so. But free too, it has to be said, are those who call him out for it. That's not cancel culture. That's freedom of speech. This episode was written by Anton Ferry. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs> 